4. That'll get you there as well. It'll make sense to have your Bible open. I'm going to be referring to um, a number of passages, but Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 11 is the primary text on which the teaching uh, this morning is based. What you need to know, uh, just for very quick context, Zechariah was a prophet who was ministering to the people of Jerusalem at the time when they had returned to Jerusalem. They were rebuilding the city, they were rebuilding the temple, and he was offering them hope in the midst of their, in the midst of their struggle. So that's where we come in. This is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Now, just so we're, just so we're clear from the, the very beginning, uh, there's no trick here. There's no subtle buildup. There's no sneaky kind of backdoor hinge to the sermon where we kind of look at this passage from the Old Testament and then at the end kind of see how all the words fit together and point us to Jesus. Okay, we're just going to state it right up, right, up, right up front. This is about Jesus. All right? I mean, after all, it's Palm Sunday the Sunday before Easter, when all four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell you that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem to great acclaim for what would be the last week of his life, sitting, riding on the back of a donkey. And that's what Jesus did. And two of the accounts, Matthew and John, specifically tie it back to this text in Zechariah 9 and basically say, okay, he comes in riding on a donkey, this is why. For example, this is what John says. In John chapter 12, uh, starting at verse 12, this is how John gives the account of what, what happened when Jesus rides into, into Jerusalem. The next day, John writes, John chapter 12, verse 12, the next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, and then here's the reference to Zechariah 9, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Right, now, what this means then is that what Jesus is doing, arriving in Jerusalem, is saying, this is a big deal. Right? Here I am, the, the king has arrived. This is a big deal. Or at least, at least it should be. I mean, when the king arrives into a, into a city, it should be a big deal. When the king arrives figuratively, into our lives, it should, be a big, it should be a big deal. Now, it may not be to some, and I guess, of course, it, it depends. The arrival of Jesus is a big deal to us. Only first, if we recognize that it is, in fact, Jesus who is arriving. It is, in fact, the king. And second, it depends upon whether, on your willingness to, to, to submit to that, submit yourself to that truth, that it is Jesus who is arriving and the implications of it. Now, it's Palm Sunday, and just because you're here this morning, you have really no choice about the first. I'm going to force you to recognize that this is Jesus who's arriving. If you're going to stay for the next 30 minutes, that, that's where you're going to be. But whether you submit to that, the implications of that, that, that I really can't control. But what I will point out is that the arrival of a king like this, the arrival of a king like described in, in Zechariah 9, is something that really we should all want. 
I mean, think of the world in which we, we live, right? You follow the news. Right? Here you have the arrival of a leader that is, that is calling people to rejoice. It's bringing people to rejoice. A leader that you're glad to see. Think about that. Wouldn't that be nice? Right? Peace to the nations. Right? The offer of, of, of the rule of peace from sea to sea. Right? We could use some of that. And like I said, our, our, our understanding of Zechariah 9 comes only really in its fulfillment that's found in Jesus. So, so being Palm Sunday, let's look at it. Let's look at the arrival of the king in this fulfilled context. What do we learn about the arrival of the king, about how that happens? We'll go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 11, and we'll see that, that when the king arrives, he arrives in four ways. He arrives clearly. He arrives humbly. He arrives sacrificially and he arrives victoriously. Clearly, humbly, sacrificially, and victoriously. Now, first, the king arrives clearly. There's no mistake, if you look at this, that, that this is the king who is arriving here. Because, of course, it says, see, your king comes. But, but more than that, I mean, more than that, because of the context in which this would have been understood. See, in Zechariah 9, it says, see, your king comes to you righteous. And then it says in verse 10 that his rule is going to extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And immediately, the hearer of Zechariah's prophecy would have thought of Psalm 72, right, which was written by King Solomon, who was the last, the last king of, of a united Israel. And in Psalm 72, Solomon speaks about a king who will be endowed with righteousness, who, Psalm 72, verse 8, who will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Same words. Right? And so the reader of Zechariah is meant to say when they see this, oh, that king, the one Solomon was talking about. But it's even deeper than that. There's even deeper context. You go way back to Genesis, Genesis 49, and you have Jacob. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one of the, the father of the 12, the 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And in Genesis 49... Jacob is blessing each of his sons right before, right before his death. And he comes, to, he comes to his son Judah. Judah, the one who he says is going to be the royal son. The one who's, whose line will produce the kings. And this is what he says in, 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 uh, in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. In other words, Judah is going to be the one from, from whom the king is going, to, is going to come. And then it says, the obedience of the nations, he's going to rule from sea to sea, the, the obedience of the nations is his. Then verse 11, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So isn't that interesting? So, so here you have, you have a king, way back in Genesis 49, a king tied tied to a donkey, connected to a donkey. And so when the reader of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, is meant to say, king, donkey, colt, that king, I see. And so then when you come to Jesus in John chapter 12 or in the other accounts, there's absolutely no mistaking on Palm Sunday, there's absolutely no mistaking what he's doing. I mean, there were times in Jesus' ministry earlier along, or earlier in his ministry when he would fly under the radar, kind of try to stay off the grid, Right? Because he knew that if he just came right out and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, people wouldn't understand what that meant. They would, they would, they would completely misunderstand it. But, but here, he's making it very clear. Now, people are, still, people are still on Palm Sunday going to misunderstand what he means. 
but he's making it absolutely clear. He's about to enter into the city of Jerusalem, and he goes out of his way to find a young donkey, and he rides into the city on it. And what are the people supposed to think? They're supposed to think of Zechariah chapter 9, of Psalm 72, of Genesis 49. Jesus is making it very clear that he's the king, and he's now arrived. So how does the king arrive? Well, the first way he arrives is clearly. Now, second way he arrives, humbly. Look back at, at Zechariah 9, verse 9. See your king comes to you, how? Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, everyone always points out the significance of the donkey, a young donkey, a colt. Why? What's so significant about, about the donkey? Well, because the donkey is a humble animal. Riding into the city on a donkey points out the humility of the king who is coming. That's why the word in verse 9 really is, that's why that word is translated gentle, or in some translations it actually uses the word humble. It's significant because, because you'd usually expect a king to be arriving, a conquering king to be arriving into a city on something a little bit more regal. Probably in the ancient world you envision a horse, right? sort of carrying the, the king in, but that's not, that's not what's happening here. Now, I don't want to overplay it. A donkey was not a despised animal in the ancient world. Kings would on occasion. They would ride on, they would ride on donkeys. In the book of Judges, there's numerous instances where you have people of very high rank riding on donkeys. So it wasn't, it wasn't unkingly per se to ride on a donkey. But riding on a donkey does tell you why the king is coming, in what way he's, he's coming. Because while kings sometimes ride on donkeys, kings didn't ride on donkeys when they were going to war. And that's what it says. This king wasn't coming for war. In fact, verse 10 tells us there's going to be no use for the war horses, no use for the chariots, no use for the, the war bows, because he's arriving in peace. He's coming to heal. He's coming to restore. And more than that, more than just kind of an animal for peacetime, why is the donkey an animal for peacetime? It's an animal for peacetime. I mean, it, it can be used in war, but it's not as useful in war as it is in peacetime. And it's very useful in peacetime because a donkey is an animal you use to plow the fields. It's an animal for work, right? When war isn't going on, you're there, you're there to work. And so what this, is, what this is saying is that the king is arriving in Jerusalem not to bring war, but because there's work to do, which brings us to the third way in which the king arrives, right? How's the king arrive? He arrives clearly, he arrives humbly, and, and, and thirdly, he arrives sacrificially. Look at verse 11, Zechariah 9, verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Now, first, what's a waterless pit? What's that talking about? It's, it's an empty well, a cistern, right? a place that was dug out of the ground to collect water, either, either underground water or rainwater that was collected. Now, when it was dry, when there was no water in it, it actually formed a rather convenient place to put prisoners. <laughs> and there's sort of a temporary prison. And there's precedent for that in the in the, in the Bible. Joseph, remember Joseph? Not, J not Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, but Joseph, one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob. Joseph made his brothers so angry that they wanted to kill him, and they threw him into a waterless pit, into a dry cistern, until they could figure out what to do with him. Or more contemporary to, to Zechariah's time, the prophet Jeremiah, who was prophesying in Jerusalem right before Jerusalem fell to Babylon, Jeremiah was so annoying to the kings and the, and the powers that be. He kept talking about how Jerusalem was going to fall and how they were evil. But they just couldn't stand him anymore. <laughs> and they, were, they wanted to kill him too, but until they figured out what to do with him, they threw him in a waterless pit. They threw him in a, in a cistern. So that, that's what's happening here. Now, why 
Why is God sending the king? Just tell us about why God's sending the king. He's sending the king because it's a rescue mission. It's a jailbreak. Right? That's, what, that's what needs to happen. God's people are in prison, and they need to be freed. They need to be saved. Now, there's a way. There's a way both in Zechariah's day and in Jesus' day where that would have been applied, where it would have been understood politically and, and militarily. To the contemporaries of, of Zechariah, it would have been the Babylonians and the Persians they, they would have thought about. The, to the contemporaries of Jesus' day, of course, it would have been the Romans. Right? But while it might have been understood that way, politically, militarily, and, and even you'd understand why it might be, it can't, it can't be just that. It's got to be much more than that. How do we know? Because what's verse 11 tell us is the basis for this, this rescue mission. What's the basis of it? Right? Because of the blood of my covenant with you. God is appealing to the blood of the covenant. The covenant. That's the promise that God made with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. But the blood, the blood of the covenant was necessary because he could not be their God and they could not be his people because, they have, because of their rebellion against him, because of, their, because of their sin. In other words, blood needed to be shed to pay the penalty for that rebellion. And this would have made complete sense to the Israelites of the day, the, the blood of the covenant. Because right? they would have thought back to the, to the covenant that had been made with Abraham. A covenant that was sealed in the, in the, in the blood of animals and signified by the blood rite, the sign of circumcision. And they would have seen it in the sacrificial system of, of Moses, where blood sacrifice was made for the atonement of sin to point to the necessity of blood being shed to pay for, for our rebellion against God. Now, so you arrive here in Zechariah's time, and Zechariah is saying that the rescue mission from the arrival of this king is going to be based on the blood of my covenant. Now, now here again, if you, think of, if you think about the shedding of blood being associated with a rescue mission, whose blood most commonly would it be? You've got a king, somebody coming in, there's going to be blood shed in order for the rescue to happen. Whose blood do you normally think of? Remember Genesis 49, I was reading a few minutes ago. This was, this was Jacob blessing his, his son Judah. Remember, he, he was blessing, and, and it would have been recognizable because of the tie with the donkey. He's, he says about the king, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Now, I mean, in, in its immediate context, you might just look at this and say, like, wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. You might say, that's just like, you know, just a sign of opulence. He's so rich, he can wash his clothes in wine. Right? But that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense. He's talking really about blood here. That's what the commentators kind of point out. Because wine doesn't actually wash. It stains. <laughs> right? He's talking about the spilling of blood. But in the Genesis 49 context, you would kind of still be left with the thought, okay, if blood's going to be shed when this conquering king comes, whose blood is it going to be? Well, it's going to be the blood of the, of the enemies, Right? That's the most logical conclusion. But fast forward to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Why is he coming? Not for war. He's coming to work. He's coming to accomplish a rescue mission, to, to rescue prisoners, to rescue us, because we are trapped in a waterless pit of our sin and our rebellion against God. And he's riding on a donkey. He's not riding on a war horse. So how's he going to accomplish the rescue? Whose blood is going to be spilled? His. His blood. In the week that's about to come, Jesus is going to take that donkey, just like 
just like Genesis 49. He's going to take that donkey and figuratively he's going to tie it up. He's going to leave that donkey aside. And by the end of the week, the garments of the king are going to be drenched with blood. They're going to be washed with blood, his own blood. That's because the king arrived sacrificially. Now, one more. So how's the king arrive? He arrives clearly. He arrives humbly. He arrives sacrificially. And lastly, the king arrives victoriously. We've already mentioned this, but it's, it's worth highlighting. In Zechariah 9, particularly in verse 10, emphasizes that the arrival of this king is going to usher in a final, complete age of, of peace and prosperity. Right? It's going to extend from, from sea to sea, from the, the river to the, to the ends of the earth. It's the same language that was used in Psalm 72. It meant, it's meant to give us a sense of completion, of totality. The rule, the peace is going to extend over the entire earth. The battle is won. The rescue is accomplished. The king is victorious, and peace reigns. So that's how the, that's how the king comes. He comes clearly, he comes humbly, he comes victoriously, and he, com- he comes sacrificially, and he comes victoriously. Now, but what's that mean for us? And so you kind of you have these four things, but what does, that, so what does that mean for us? What's our response to that? Well, let, let, let's just quickly kind of go through each of those four things. We'll start at the bottom, work our way back up since we were just there. If the king comes victoriously... Right? What, does that, what, does that mean for, what does that mean for us? Well, it means if the king comes victoriously, it means we rejoice. Right? This, the whole section, verses 9 to 11, that we read starts with this command to rejoice. In case there's any doubt about it, about how you should rejoice, this is rejoice greatly. Right? And we should shout about it. And this, this isn't just the word like shout like for you know, meaningless noise. Like we have shouting in our house. Right? With, okay. This isn't meaningless noise. Right? This, is, this is the word that's used for, like, trumpet blasts and victory cheers. Right? So what that means for us is that for all, for all of those, you know, sort of dour and angry cultural warriors who like to frown all the time, looking down, kind of really depressed, you know, your feet, looking at your feet, God is calling you, look up. Right? Look up and see the arriving king. Pick up your palm branch and start shouting because he's here. Right? And, it, and it should be a no-brainer. I mean, when you go to a sporting event and they kind of flash on, this, on the jumbotron, right, Let, let's make some noise. What do you do? You pick up your foam number one hand, you start banging your thunder sticks together, you respond, you make some noise. Right? And that's just a game, no offense, but that's just a game. And you don't even know if your team's going to win or not. But here, here you have Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem, and figuratively he's holding a sign that says, hey, let's make some noise. And the response should be, to rejoice. Now think about this in your, in your own life. Jesus has guaranteed the outcome. This isn't a game that's in question, right? This isn't to discount the reality of, of struggle or brokenness in the world or struggle and brokenness perhaps even in your own life. But whatever the worry, what this means, whatever the worry, health, conflict, addiction, whatever the worry, whatever it is, God is not reconsidering the promise that he made. The victory that he talks about here is assured. Jesus is not looking down on us from the perspective of eternity and saying, oh, well, you know, I was considering bringing peace and and, and prosperity and the end of all conflict and instituting my rule from from sea to sea, but now, fill in the blank, I see this slate of presidential candidates in America in the 21st century, and I don't know, maybe I'll reconsider my promise. No. I mean, come on, please, have a bigger view. If the king arrives victoriously, then rejoice. Now, take one step up. Okay, if the king arrives victoriously, rejoice. But if the king comes sacrificially, then what's that mean for us? It means we follow his example. It means we do, we, he comes sacrificially, means we come sacrificially. 
Right? When we come into the world proclaiming the arrival of the king, it means we do it not just with the message of Jesus, but with the method of Jesus. Jesus came proclaiming the arrival of the king, but he came sacrificially. We do the same thing. What's that look like? I mean, just for example, what's that look like? It means, I don't know, you have a neighbor who, who, who you struggle with, who, like, you know, who complains about your dog, complains about your kids. It means when you see your neighbor's trash cans down at the bottom of the street, you take them up for them. Right? It means maybe you make a meal for the person in the office. Maybe they don't agree with you about the definition of marriage or something, but they're, but they're sick at home on disability. It means you love them. Right? It might mean you sacrifice yourself, your reputation by spending time with people that, that the world doesn't highly value. It might mean that you give more and buy less. It might mean that you, when you're insulted, you don't pay back with insult. And then you stop and you say, wait a minute, that kind of sounds like it might hurt. Right. I mean, Maybe. The, think about this. The king that we follow was falsely accused, wrongly convicted, merciless, mercilessly abu abused, stripped of his possessions, and died with only a handful of friends. Now, by his grace, we may not actually endure all of those things, but if we think that we have the right to a perfect life where everyone likes us, our children always obey us, traffic always gets out of our way, work is always enjoyable, and our to-do list is always complete, right, then we miss the point. Right? That's sometimes the assumption of an entitled American of how the world ought to work, but it's not the assumption of the follower, should not be the assumption of the follower of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we return to despair and, and cynicism. That's why we started with rejoice. It doesn't mean that you go back there, because remember the ultimate promise, triumph. Right? In fact, if you think about it, despair and, and cynicism, they really only result when our expectation is for everything to work perfectly. Right? And then our expectations aren't met. That's what leads to despair and cynicism. But what Jesus is saying here is, is, look, I come sacrificially. Don't be surprised when this happens. This is, how, this is how it goes. So if the king arrives victoriously, then rejoice. But if the king arrives sacrificially, follow his example, and you come sacrificially too. Now, take one more step up. If the king comes humbly, then that means we submit to him. Right? He comes in humility. We come to him in humility. The king in, in Zechariah 9 is coming humbly on a donkey. Jesus on Palm Sunday is doing the, doing the same thing, intentionally conveying this image of, of humility. And what that means is that when we consider that, consider what's happening, consider the sacrifice that the king has made for us, the blood sacrifice that's made on our behalf, that there is no other response. That means is that there is no other response than to trust him to do what we can't do. Right? There is no more humbling thing than to admit your need for help, to admit, your to admit that you recognize that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to fix yourself, to fix your situation. And, and when it comes to the most broken thing in our lives, our relationship with God, that is, that is the hardest thing for someone to do, to admit, to admit at the core that your situation is so dire, your problem is so big, your rebellion is so total, that you are completely unable to fix yourself. And this, then, is the ultimate act of humility, to put our lives into the hands of God and say, save me. Remember the crowds lining the street on Palm Sunday when the King Jesus arrives on a donkey? They're shouting, Hosanna, which, of course, does not mean hooray. It means save us. It means, it means we need to be saved. Now, I want you to see really quickly that even in this Jesus is our model. 
Even in this, even in this sense of, of, of being humble, of submitting ourselves, of crying out to God and saying, save us, even in this, the king is the model. Look at verse 9 of Zechariah 9. The translators have a difficult time with this kind of second part of verse 9 where it says, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. It's that, that word having salvation that brings the difficulty. Because the commentators point out that literally it means, it means saved, as in the king is saved. The, the king is the one who is the object of, of being saved. The king is the one who is the object of salvation. And the translators struggle with that, of course, because we know that this is the Messiah who is coming to bring rescue, to do the saving. So how is the one who is doing the saving also the one who has been saved? And the answer is that, that his being saved from death, the king, the Messiah, being saved from death, is the means by which we are saved from death. Right? Don't, don't miss this because as, we, as we come into the week of Easter, because this is Easter. The rescue of Jesus from death is the power of de- is the power of Easter. When Jesus was dying on the cross, when he was experiencing death, he needed to be saved, not from, not from his sin, from our sin. In Luke 23, one of the last things Jesus says on the cross, one of the last things he says is he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Boy, that's humble. Here comes Jesus on our behalf in his moment of greatest need, and he says, Father, save me. And in the resurrection, we see that the trust that he places in his father is absolutely well placed. Peter, the apostle Peter, who was preaching only a couple of weeks after Jesus' resurrection to the crowd in Jerusalem, probably containing many of the people who are here in the crowd of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Peter says to the crowd in, in, in the book of Acts, you, to the crowd, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. Now here's the salvation. Peter says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Do you see that? God saved Jesus from death. And in Jesus' rescue, in the king's rescue, comes ours. It's the ultimate act of humility. And if you've never, if you've never done that, that is the, that's the pri- primary application of everything I'm saying this morning. Will you come and confess your pride? Will you look to God to save you, first and primarily, eternally? But then even in, the, even in the, the daily kind of situations of your life, the things where you look at and you say, like, I don't think I can fix this. Will you come to your heavenly Father and say, like Jesus, like the King, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, save me. Now, finally, the King comes king comes victoriously, we rejoice. If the king comes sacrificially, we follow his example. If the king comes humbly, we trust him and we come to him humbly. But finally, if the king comes clearly, what this means is we have to choose. In other words, when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutral ground. That's the message of Palm Sunday. Consider this. For all the talk about Jesus entering Jerusalem humbly, in humility, riding on a donkey, Right? Everything, everything that we've been talking about, what, consider that. What Jesus is doing in riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's only humble if what he's claiming about himself is true. Right? In other words, Jesus is entering a donkey very deliberately, knowing exactly how that would be understood. Right? He knew Zechariah chapter 9. He's riding into the capital city of Israel 
at the Passover, at the time when the crowds would have been the largest, and he's doing it in full view at, in, in the middle of the day. Right? And in doing that, he's claiming the title of the Messianic king. He's saying, hey, everyone, I'm the king. Right? The one that Jacob talked about in Genesis 49. The one that Solomon talked about in Psalm 72. The one that Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 9. That's me. Now think about this. That's only humble. <laughs> Jesus is only humble riding into Jerusalem if that's true. Otherwise, it is one of the most arrogant things that someone could possibly have done. Right? And there's no middle ground. Jesus doesn't leave us. He's either, he's either arrogant or he is who he says he is. There's no room for neutrality. C.S. Lewis probably puts it best when he talks about this. He says, if you actually look at Jesus, for those who actually look at Jesus, Jesus was never regarded, this is what Lewis says, Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced hatred and terror, or he produced adoration. But there's no trace, Lewis says, there's no trace of people expressing mild approval. Do you see what Lewis is saying? He's saying Jesus came clearly. For the people that met him, that actually met him, they knew. And they either hated him and called him a blasphemer, or they bowed at his feet and they called him Lord. But there is no mild approval. There is no, there is no like button on his Facebook page. Right? You can't like him. Just, I just like him. There's no option for that. Right? Not if you've really met him. So that's how the king comes. The king, the Christ, the Messiah has indeed arrived. He's arrived clearly, humbly, sacrificially, and victoriously. Let's pray. Our Father, in each of these areas, we are in need of your grace. God, we need you to open our eyes and to see the clarity with which you come. We need, we need, to open. We need our eyes to be opened so that we might recognize our absolute need our absolute inability to fix our situation eternally or even in the situations, the problems and struggles of our own life. And so, Lord, we come and we submit ourselves to you and we say, save us. And, God, we pray that as we experience that salvation, we will go out into the world with sacrifice, that we would be able to endure whatever the world might, might offer to us because we come in the knowledge and in the, in the name of the one who knows what it's like to experience sacrifice, whose sacrifice enables ours. And God, let the victory of the cross power us. Let the assurance that you will come and reign and rule from sea to sea, that the peace will come, that it is assured. Let that be our fuel as we go out into a world of conflict in so desperate need of the peace that you offer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.